Section 14 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Julie Yu. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime. By Hugo Munsterberg. Section. Suggestions in Court. Part 1. It was in a large city which I was visiting for the first time. I went to see the hypnotic experiments of a friend, a physician for nervous diseases. He invited me to witness the treatment of a lady who had been deeply hypnotized by him for local nervous disturbance. Her mind seemed normal in every respect. She was a woman of wealth and social position. When she was in hypnotic sleep, he suggested to her to return in the afternoon when she would find us both, and as soon as he took out his watch to declare her willingness to make a last will in which I should become the only heir to all her property. She had never seen me before, and I was introduced to her under a fictitious indifferent name. When she left the office after awakening from her hypnotic sleep, she did not take any notice of me at all. At the appointed hour, she returned, apparently not knowing herself why she came. She found in the parlor, besides her physician and me, three or four others who wanted to watch the development of the experiment. She was not embarrassed. She said that she had passed the house by chance and that she thought it would be nice to show her doctor how much better she felt, and to ask whether there was any objection to her going to the theatre. I then began a conversation with her about the opera. We talked for perhaps 10 minutes on music and the drama, exactly as if we had met at any dinner party. And there was nothing in the least strange in her ideas or in her expression of them. Suddenly, my friend asked how late it was and, as arranged, took his watch out of his pocket. There was a moment of hesitation. The lady spoke the next few words in a stammering way, but then she rushed on and told us that she had not expected to find such a company, but that her real purpose in coming was to report to me that she had selected me as her heir and there, now, she wanted, accordingly, to make her last will. Up to this moment, her action has been a mechanical carrying out of the post-hypnotic suggestion. But the really interesting part was now to begin. I told her that there must be a mistake, as she could not have seen me before, and I mentioned a fictitious city in which I claimed to live. At once, she replied that she had just spent the last winter in that city, and that she had met me there daily on the street, and that from the first she had planned to leave me all that she owned. I insisted that at least she had never spoken to me. Yes, in that same city she had met me repeatedly in society. I represented to her the unnaturalness of leaving her wealth to a stranger instead of to her children, 
At once, she replied that she had thought it out for years, that it would be a blessing for the children not to be burdened with riches. While she knew that I would use them in a philanthropic way, the others took part in the conversation. Scores of arguments were brought up to discourage her from this fantastic plan. For each one, she had a long considered excellent rejoinder. Finally, I told her directly that, as she knew, she had been hypnotized that morning, and that this whole idea of the last will had been planted in her head by the witnessed suggestion of her physician. With a charming smile, she replied that she knew all that perfectly well, but that she did not contradict and resist this proposition of the doctor, simply because it by chance. Coincided entirely with her own cherished plans, which had been perfectly firmed in her mind for a year. She would have written to me some day soon if I had not come to town. She went on that she was unwilling to hear any further doubts of her sincerity, and that she was ready to take an oath that she had made up her mind in favor of such a testament long before she was hypnotized. To put an end to all this, she insisted that paper be brought to her, and then she wrote a codicil which left all her property to the fictitious man from the fictitious town. The doctors present had to sign as witnesses. I put the paper into my pocket, switched the conversation over to the theatre again, and after a few minutes, she had evidently forgotten the whole episode. She treated me again as a complete stranger, and when I asked whether she happened to know the city before mentioned, I was told that she had once passed through it on the train. When she left the house, she had clearly not the slightest remembrance of that document in my pocket, which we others then burned together. If I had been present as an uninformed stranger during that afternoon visit. I should have been so completely misled that I could not have thought of any additional inquiry or any further argument to test the validity of the testimony. Everything seemed to harmonize with the one plan which had been put into her mind. All her memories became falsified. All her tastes and emotions were turned upside down. All her life experiences were mingled with, and supplemented by, untrammeled imagination, coupled with the strongest feeling of certainty and sincerity. And yet, everything was molded by her own mind, with the exception of that one decision, which had been urged upon her from the outside. If a suggestion planted in her consciousness would remain there isolated. It would be easy to detect it. It would be in such manifold contradiction with all the normal reminiscences and habitual arguments that every court, for instance, would quickly recognize the strange thought as an intruder. But just this is the uncanny power of suggestion, that it at once. Infects all the neighboring ideas and emotions, and forces the whole mental life of the personality under the unnatural influence. Of course, 
life does not often make such effective experiments, and the danger seems small that judges or jurymen should ever be deceived by such an elaborate performance of a witness. Few persons only can be hypnotized to the degree that a post-hypnotic suggestion becomes so powerful. But it cannot be emphasized too strongly that the extreme abnormal changes in mental life go over by the smallest steps into the perfectly normal and habitual behavior. The grotesque destructiveness of such a hypnotic revolution shows only an exaggerated form of the dangerous working of suggestion, which leads in a sliding scale down to the little bits of strange influences with their unreasonable reasoning. As when we read in the cars, the unhypnotic suggestions of cooked with gas, or read the sun, or wear rubber heels. The psychologist does not need, indeed, the hypnotic stage to demonstrate experimentally how every suggestion contaminates the most sincere memory. A picture of a farmer's room was shown to about 40 persons, children and adults. Each one examined it individually and was then asked to give a report from the fresh memory image in reply to detailed questions. The picture had plenty of detail which could easily be grasped. The questions were partly indifferent and objective. How many persons are there in the room? Does the room have windows? What is the man doing? There were persons and windows and the man was eating his soup. But other questions, referring to objects not present in the picture, could pass through different stages of suggestiveness. Is there a stove in the room? It's not so intense a suggestion as the express question. Did you see the stove in the room? There was no stove in the picture. Are there houses to be seen through the windows of the room? Does a lamb hang from the ceiling? The result showed that the replies to these suggestive questions were correct only in 59% of all cases. Hundreds of times, objects were invented in accordance with the suggestion of the question, and this immediately after the direct observation of the picture, and without any personal interest in the falsified result. The experiments show that the resistance for the young people is much weaker than for the grown-ups, for the girls weaker than for the boys but they all were under perfect conditions of emotional calmness. Such conditions are not to be found on the witness stand under the excitement of the solemn court procedure. There the resistance of the adult persons may sink to the low level of that of the boys and girls. Above all, the experiments show that at all ages, the positive effect of the suggestion works itself out in minutes and concrete detail. As soon as the subject has answered that there is a stove in the room, he is at once ready to reply by a positive statement to the further question. Where is the stove standing? The one says on the left, the other on the right, one in the corner and one against the middle of the wall, each simply following the path of least resistance in his own imagination. 
the experiments allowed a complete gradation of the suggestive power of the various questions. The gown of the farmer's wife was red. It was sufficient to ask whether the gown was blue or green to eliminate, for many, the red entirely from memory. And with the suggestiveness of the question, the readiness to elaborate their own inventions steadily increased. Experiments of this kind have been carried on with almost identical results in different nations with persons of different ages and professions, with most varied material. And every time, the power of a suggestive question to break down the true memory appears alarming. But whoever has studied these protocols of the psychological laboratories cannot help feeling that many cross-examinations in court are only continuations of the interesting tests carried on to demonstrate that there is nothing more suggestive for some persons than a skillful question. Their influence may set in long before the lawyer of the other side rejects a too clumsy suggestion as an unallowed leading question. Of course, the illusory effect of a suggestion need not wait till the labor of the memory sets in. Our perceptions themselves may be distorted through suggestive influences. Experimental psychology can demonstrate it and at the same time test it in a thousand forms. Of course, such little psychological laboratory experiments seem petty and far removed from the reality of life experience, as they can offer nothing but a dry schematic pattern. Yet, this is a complete misunderstanding. Not the weakness of the experiments, but the strength lies in their schematic character. All the experimental sciences teach us to understand the world by bringing it many foldness to the simplest formula. The physicist, too, does not wait till the lightning breaks through the clouds. He does not need the thunderstorm. The small electrical machine on his laboratory table can teach him in a much more instructive way what factors determine the electric discharge. The artificial schematization shows the connections between cause and effect alone. Thus, we do not need in the laboratory the erratic play of emotions and prejudices which suggestions and persuasions may stir up in the chaos of practical life. We recognize the essential features just as well in the slight changes of perceptive judgment with the tiny material of our workshop. If I have, for instance, on the one side of my table, 30 little squares of grey paper, and on the other side, the same number of the same material, and I ask the subject to decide, without counting on, which of the two sides there are more of the grey squares, I can easily arrange that he sees more on whichever side I want him to. I find, perhaps, that his judgment depends upon the grouping, that those 30 pieces suggest different numbers, according as they lie in regular lines or in irregular disorder, according as they are shut off in small groups or grouped in one circle. 
surrounded by a frame, or accentuated by a few ink spots, or brightened by a light background. In short, that very various side factors suggest an erroneous judgment as to the number of the perceived things. And yet, such harmless experimental tests unveil all the factors with which, for instance, political parties before election awake misleading suggestions as to the relative strength of the party vote. A little bit of bright colour on my laboratory table gives me all the moral effect on my subjects, which the most wonderful torchlight processions and brass bands can have on the suggestive voter. Or take a still more striking experiment. We have a series of cardboard boxes of different sizes, from a width of a few inches to several feet, and we make them all exactly equal in weight, filling the smallest perhaps with iron and the largest with straw. All are to have the same handle, and if one after the other is lifted with closed eyes, all of course appear of equal heaviness. But now the subject is to lift them one after the other with open eyes, and the impression of weight will at once be controlled by the suggestion given by the size. The small box appears now several times heavier than the large one, and no effort to overcome the suggestion can rule out the illusion. It may be a long way from the overestimation of the weight of a little cardboard box to the falsifying overestimation of a piece of evidence by the jury of a murder case. But it is a straight way without demarcation lines. If the 12 jurymen were grouped according to their suggestibility, from the most stubborn to the most easily influenced, they would stand probably in the same order as if they were tested for errors in the judgment of our boxes of cardboard. Yes, we might simplify our test still more. Sometimes I find it sufficient to show to my subjects various pairs of circles drawn on paper. They had to decide which of the pairs was the larger. The pairs were always of the same size. But in the centres, various figures were printed. The suggestible person is easily inclined to call the circle with the figure 79 larger than the circle which contains merely the figure 32. Just as there may be men who think the prettier girl to be the cleverer or the richer fellow the more brilliant. End of section 14